Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, it's great to be with you this morning. It's great to be back. I, I will take great pleasure in being called one of Carrick's own still. It's always wonderful to come back to Carrick Baptist. Uh, and, and it's such a privilege for me to be able to come and share God's Word with you this morning on the first Sunday of New Year. We're going to be in the book of Colossians this morning, Colossians chapter 3. So if you want to turn there with me, if you've got a Bible with you, please do that. Um, We'll read these verses together. Colossians chapter 3, verses 15 through to 17. This is the word of God. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Amen. Let's pray together and ask for God's help. Father, we come to you now and we recognize our need of help as we come to your word. And so we ask for it, knowing that you're abundantly able to help us. Father, we pray that you would give us understanding as we read and learn from these words. We pray, Lord, that your spirit would be working in us, that these words would penetrate into our hearts, that we may be changed and become more like our Savior. Father, be with us now. Guide us and help us, we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, it's that time of year that our lives are getting a makeover, isn't it? We're we're all a week into our New Year's resolutions. I hope the diet's going okay and the exercise isn't too miserable. It is too miserable for me. Uh, As most of you probably know, I'm living with Joel, so it's always interesting to see him at the turn of the New Year. Not one element of his life remains untouched by New Year's resolutions. He's knee-deep in protein shakes and multivitamins to become the healthy man on the planet. But it's of course a natural time for us to to look back on the year that's just passed, isn't it? The last phase of our lives and see in, in what way our lives could benefit from some form of renewal or improvement. But why just stop at our personal lives? We often ask ourselves at this time of the year, what, what do we want our lives to look like? But what if we asked ourselves, what should our church look like? What is church meant to be like? What, what, what are we meant to be like in church? How should we act in church? Now, we'll all undoubtedly have some kind of answer to that question. Our, our answers will be shaped by our upbringing or our own convictions or the d- denomination to which we belong. But, but, but it's interesting, isn't it? When you start school, you're brought in and you're taught how to behave and what is expected of you. When you begin a new job, you're shown around the place and you're taught the specific do's and don'ts of that particular job. You're shown what's expected of you. But when we come to church, that isn't really the case, is it? Maybe you grew up in church and your parents taught you how to behave, what to wear, what to say and what not to say, those kind of things. But no one ever really brings you into church and tells you that you have to do this and and you've got to do that. And this is a good thing. 
Because we want church to be a place that anyone can come to and feel as if they are loved uh, with the love of Jesus and that they can come among a group of people who are all flawed sinners. We don't come to church to follow a list of rules. But an interesting question to ask ourselves is, how does the Bible teach us to be in church. What is church meant to be like? And what we find in the passage of Colossians that we read, it isn't Paul's top 10 tips on how to do church. What we find is three guiding principles that ought to apply to every single church and every individual in them. And these three principles will show, will show us how we as people who have been saved by Christ should be in church, and they show us what church should be like. And what an opportunity we have at the beginning of a new year to reevaluate our church life. For us personally, maybe we just go through the motions week in and week out. We go to church because it's, it's a good thing to do, or we go because we love to see the people there. Or do we go because this is the place that God has given us for corporate worship, a spiritual oasis where our souls are fed and nourished? And for the, for the corporate church, for church as a whole, are our priorities in check? Are we keeping the main thing the main thing is, is all we do for God and by God's strength? Paul would have us take a step back this morning to look at our church and ourselves in the church context and evaluate whether or not our focus and our priorities and our hearts are in the right place as we come to church. So now to understand what Paul has to say in this passage, it's vital for us that we get a feel for what has gone in the previous verses of chapter 3. At the beginning of chapter 3, Paul turned to the Christians in Colossae and urged them to remember their new heavenly identity. He says, since then you have been raised with Christ. These Christians, like all Christians, have been adopted as God's children, and they're the beneficiaries of the blessings that come from Jesus' work on the cross. And it's because then of this new heavenly identity that Paul outlines in this passage how this ought to change someone who is now a Christian, that there are to be people whose minds and whose hearts are set on things above. That's to say that all their actions and decisions and thoughts must have Christ at the center. Paul would then move forward and show how this new identity provides the Christian with a new relationship to sin where those who are outside of Christ sin without thinking of their offense towards God or the damage they do to themselves. Now that they're in Christ, they've been freed from the bondage of sin and they're called to put to death what belongs to their earthly nature, to hate sin as God hates their sin. Paul called these Christians to put off the old clothes of sinfulness and to put on the new clothes of compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. That to be a Christian is not just to seek not to sin, but also to pursue a life that reflects the life that Jesus lived. A life of true godly character, a life that involves forgiveness, and as Paul says, above all, love. Put on love, for so great is the love that God has for his people that it is the chief virtue that he desires to see in his people. 
This is what Paul wanted these Christians to be living out, to be in the business of killing sin and pursuing righteousness. And then we arrive at verse 15, where we are this morning. And we see a shift in emphasis in this section because where he was speaking to Christians as individuals, now he speaks to them as a church and directs his attention then towards how Christ's church should be. And he'll show it to us in three ways. He shows us three principles that teach us where we should place our focus when it comes to church and as we come to live together as Christians. And these three principles are that the peace of Christ must rule in our hearts, the message of Christ must dwell among us richly, and the glory of Christ must guide us in all we do. So firstly, Paul draws us to see the peace of Christ. Verse 15, that the peace of Christ rule in your heart, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. So, so Paul, he turns to these people who, who have just entered into this new humanity, they've become Christians, they've had their affections turned from themselves to Christ, and what is his first concern? His first concern is how they will live together in a church community, because he knows that disagreements can arise, controversy could breed bitterness, therefore relationships could be fractured, and it's understandable that this would be one of Paul's concerns, isn't it? We would all love if, we, if when we came to a church that we'd be walking into a place where everyone agreed on everything and where everyone would get on perfectly and we could just live in harmony happily ever after. That would be amazing, but it's wishful thinking, isn't it? Because when we walk into church on a Sunday morning, we don't walk into a room of perfect people when I was in college, we were told if you were called to go to a perfect church with, with perfect people, don't go because you'll ruin it. When we, when we come to church, we walk into a building full of sinful people, people who are fighting their sin, yes, but sinful people nonetheless. Furthermore, we're walking into a room full of people who come from different backgrounds, different upbringings, different opinions, different political persuasions, different struggles, different reasons for being there. And so it's no wonder that Paul was aware of the possibility that a church would not operate in perfect harmony. Now, in the context of Colossae, Paul knew of false teaching that was distressing the church, and so there was an obvious danger of division here. But it's a danger that faces all churches. It's a sad truth that churches will never be perfect places, that they will never be places immune to difficulty and division. And it's for this reason that Paul introduces this first guiding principle for church life. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. This is what he says, that the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. Because Paul knows our tendency towards disharmony, he reminds us of our call to harmony, our call to peace. Paul said in Romans 14, let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. The body of Christ, all Christians, the whole of Christ's church are called to exist in peace. They're called to live in peace with people who, as we said before, are so different from one another. 
They're called to live peaceably with those who they may never have even encountered, never mind live in community with. And so with all then those differences and with all of our sinfulness, how can we be called to something that sounds so impossible? Well, it's because of the one who calls us to peace. It's because of Jesus. Because if it were not for Jesus, it's likely that most of us would never have met before. Yet we're here as people who love Jesus, and this is what we have in common. This is where we find our mutual ground. And it's then because of our unity in Jesus that we are called to unity in practice. It's because of the Savior who embodied living out peace that we are then called to live in peace with one another. Since we have committed to following him, we are by proxy committed to living in peace with his people. Because if we're not living in peace, then we're not reflecting the character of Christ in our lives or in our church. But what does it mean to live in peace? Does it mean to agree on every theological issue or to always agree on how we do certain things? No. To disagree on these things is an inevitability in our fallen natures and with our limited understanding of these things. And so what does it mean to live in peace as Christ's church? Well, I think it means to live with each other in a way that never distracts from the goal of glorifying Christ and sharing him with others. Uh, This can be difficult. This is why we have to be called to it, because we can't just assume it will happen. Because to live in peace with others means we must have humility. It means we must be content with not always getting our own way. It means being willing to confess when we have wronged someone and being willing to be gentle and forgiving when we have been wronged by someone else. It means being patient when we find our temper is pushed to its limits. But who is up to such a task? It seems almost so impossible that it just isn't worth trying But Paul shows that there is a way. He says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Dick Lucas, when commentating on this passage, says, when Christ rules in the heart, his peace will rule in the fellowship. Paul's aim here is corporate peace, peace in the church body. But he knows that for there to be corporate peace, there must be personal peace. Paul shows how we might have this kind of peace in our churches. It must first take root in our hearts. And we can understand this, can't we? If we come unwilling to let go of our pride or our preferences, the desires of our own heart, we're never going to be able to live in a way that promotes peace in a community of believers. It's only when we know this peace in our hearts that it can inform how we live in relationship with our fellow brothers and sisters. The word rule here, where Paul says, let the word of Christ rule in your hearts, it's an interesting one. The word rule carries this idea of being an umpire. And so what Paul is saying is that peace is to be the the deciding factor in our hearts and in our relationships. I think the idea is that as we think and talk and act, We must always be asking ourselves, is the way I am being and the things I am doing working in a way that pursues peace among my fellow believers? 
If peace is what we are aiming for, then peace should be at the forefront of all things we do as a church and also the way we do it. But this, this is still tough, isn't it? How do we let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts? I, I think at the end of this verse, Paul gives us a clue as to how we might pursue this personal peace. He places as an add-on at the end of the verse, and be thankful. Uh, and now, when you read this, this comment may seem out of place at first. It seems to, to come out of nowhere. But I think Paul actually means to draw a deeply significant connect, connect, connection between gratitude and peace in our hearts. But throughout the book of Colossians, thankfulness receives great emphasis from Paul. And he seems to reintroduce this theme here because Paul knows that if we are people who are consciously and purposefully thankful for all that God has done for us. And if we as Christian people then do this together, then we'll be willing to commit to living in peace because we'll be more able to make the sacrifices necessary to live in peace, knowing all that we have to be thankful for. Paul's first principle for living together as a healthy church is to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. Paul's second principle is to let the message of Christ dwell among us richly. I live with two guys who used to run a business together. Sorry, Joel, you're getting a hard time this morning. This is where Joel starts to get nervous when I mention things like this. But one of the things they were always concerned about uh, in their line of work was that all they did would be aligned with their mission statement. They wanted to make sure that all the clients they took on board and all the work they did aligned with this purpose. We started with a purpose and everything worked out from that. And now in churches, we, we sometimes have a similar thing. When I was here in Carrick Baptist, the church laid out a five-year vision and had a mission statement to help guide in all the work that the church would do to achieve this goal. But even though this is a really good thing and a really helpful thing, in any church, it is not a mission statement or a written purpose that ultimately decides how we operate or worship. Instead, it's this principle that Paul lays out here. Verse 16, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. In church, what ought to lie at the very center of all that we do and all that we say is the message of Christ. It was one of the great pillars of the Reformation, giving the Word of God the central place in our churches and in our lives. And maybe this sounds obvious. Maybe you hear that and think, well, it's, it's just a no-brainer. And you're right. As Christians, the, the, the news that Jesus died on the cross to save us from the punishment of our sin is of that absolute importance to us personally and to us as a church. If it weren't for Jesus, we would not be here. It's because of him that we're united together. But lo, as Christians, we are all about the gospel. It's so easy to make plans and organize events and get distracted from the message of Christ because of all the other elements that go into them. What we see here is that Paul is adamant that at the heart of all that is done in the church's life and in a community of believers, 
is that the message of Christ would dwell among us richly. It is what, what, what all parts of our worship services and everything the church does ought to have at its center. Listen to what one writer says about this. The, the quotation is up on the screen as well. The message about Christ should take up permanent residence among the Colossians. It should be constantly at the center of all the community's activities and worship. Richly suggests that this constant reference to the word of Christ should not be superficial or passing, but that it should be a deep and penetrating contemplation that enables the message to have transforming power in the life of the community. And Paul elaborates on this, that this message of Christ is to dwell among us as we teach and admonish one another in the community of believers as we do church together. The message of Christ is to serve as our teacher. It's, it's to guide us in the righteousness. But notice how Paul doesn't leave this responsibility to the pastor or the leaders of the church. The responsibility of teaching and correcting lies with every member of the church. Paul envisions that the, the church community being a community of people who love the message of Jesus, share the message of Christ, and are then willing to hold each other accountable to what that message asks of us. Paul wants us to be people who are pursuing Christ and who encourage each other to pursue Christ. This is one of the wonderful privileges of being part of a local church. It provides for us a community of people who are bound together because of their mutual love for their Savior and who serve to encourage and strengthen each other in our faith. We have a call here to accept this responsibility in our friendships and in our families and in our church, to, to disciple each other and to push each other deeper into our faith. And how does Paul envision this would happen? One of the ways he sees this taking place in our worship service is through our worship service, and that's namely through our singing. And I think this is extraordinary. Paul says, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. I don't know how you feel when you sing in church. There may be times when you feel a special time of worship. You feel like you're, you're truly worshiping God. And there may also be times when you're just saying the words tunefully. And you know that you're just going through the motions. I think Paul here places more emphasis on corporate singing than we might usually think. Paul sees corporate singing as a means of mutual discipleship. He sees it as a way of building each other up. And isn't this such a rich way of viewing our singing and our services? We, we never come to church to be mere consumers. We come to serve and we come to encourage each other. And so as we sing wonderful spiritual truths in the songs and the hymns that we sing, isn't it a powerful thought that we ought to be singing these songs not just to hear a nice tune or to affirm what we believe or even just to worship God, but also to teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. When we sing, we do more than just recite words to a tune. We serve each other's spiritual formation and come together as God's people in worship and edification. 
This is why it's so important to sing good songs. Songs with solid biblical truth that are founded on good theology. This is how the word of God dwells richly in our singing. It dictates what we sing. And notice again that Paul calls us to sing with gratitude in our hearts. If you come to church and you've had a rough week or or you've come out of the house straight out of an argument, perhaps before we worship, we ought to just take a few moments to remember what God has done for us in Christ, that as we sing, we sing with gratitude and we sing to build each other up in Christ. We are here to encourage each other as we sing. What, What a responsibility and what a privilege for us. Paul's second principle of a healthy church is to let the message of Christ dwell among us richly. But thirdly and finally, Paul shows us that the glory of Christ must guide us in all we do. Paul has shown us that we must always aim for peace in the fellowship and that the message of Christ must dwell in all that we do. But to what end? What is the main aim of all we do in church? Why do we have worship services and why do we organize events and have ministries throughout the week? It's all for the glory of Christ. Paul says, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. If the aim of the whole Christian life could be summed up in one verse, I think this would be it. It's the motive that lies at the center of all we do as Christians. Paul says, whatever you do, and whether in word or deed, the combination of word or deed was a common phrase used. And the idea is that the totality of one's interaction with the world And so what Paul is saying is everything we do, every thought we have, and every word we share, every person we interact with, and every plan we make, Paul is saying that all of these should be done with the intention of bringing glory to Jesus. It's to give him the honor that he deserves. And as people who have been redeemed by him, we then are meant to be people who honor him with our redeemed lives. Paul furthers this and says that in all these things, in our actions and words and deeds, we do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. The fourth commandment says, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. We often think of that commandment as a command to not swear using the Lord's name, to not take the Lord's name in vain, and it certainly includes this. I think this has a much broader reach. And I think the heart of this commandment is to show us that we can't call ourselves Christians and yet don't live in a way that reflects Christ. We can't take the name of the Lord Jesus upon ourselves and then claim to be an ambassador of his name, but then take his name in vain by living in a way that doesn't seek his glory, but instead seeks our own glory that this shows the significance of what Paul says here. We must do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. We either live for the glory of our Lord or we take his name in vain as we live for ourselves. And that this is challenging. 
as we live, we must ask ourselves, can what I am doing or saying truly be done in the name of the Lord Jesus? Can I really do this if I'm representing the Lord Jesus? I know that that's not always the case for me, and I'm sure I'm not alone in that. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so often we live according to the flesh, but what we are being called to is lives devoted to bringing our Lord glory. That this is a high calling, but this is a calling worthy of what we have been promised as those who have been given faith in Christ. And notice for a third time that Paul says this is done, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is step one of glorifying God, giving him thanks, giving him the honor and not taking it for ourselves. And so as we come to a close, no church is perfect and it will never be perfect. It's true that if you find the perfect church, don't go, but you won't find one. Churches are filled with people who love Jesus, but also feel him every day. Churches are full of people who want to glorify their God, yet constantly fight with wanting to glory ourselves. This has not been Paul's three-step guide to a, a perfect church. This has been Paul laying out principles for those who are seeking to follow Christ and do church faithfully for the glory of God. And if you're here this morning, and I don't know, maybe this is your first time, or you've been here for a little while, but you don't yet know Jesus, your faith isn't yet in him, it would be wonderful to see you come to know him. Because what you would be then is another sinful person being brought into a church who seek to follow Jesus. That's what every Christian in this room is. You could join and, and seek peace with the people in this church together and encourage everybody in the room as you sing together and live a life of seeking to glorify God together if you come to him. The word of Christ is central to all we do in our church and our worship. And so let us be people who, by his word and through his spirit, commit to seeking peace with one another for the glory of God alone. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, in our faithlessness, you are entirely faithful. Where we feel you, where we are prone to wonder, you love us so faithfully. Father, we pray that you'd forgive us for those times where we seek our own glory. Father, we pray that as we enter into this new year, as we are people who belong to a local church, that you would put it in our hearts to seek peace with one another, to encourage each other, especially as we sing, and most of all, that we would be always seeking your glory. We ask for your help in this because we need it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hand over to Johnny.